I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. As we've been working through the book of Hebrews for several months now, we've slowed down as we came to chapter 11, considering over the last several weeks, what does it look like to live by faith? What is faith in action or faith in practice? This is now the second week in a row that we'll be looking at Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 22. Last week, as we considered these verses, we saw how a life of faith makes us strangers in and makes us look strange to the world. And as we consider these verses again, we're now going to look at the life of faith from a different angle. This isn't the explicit teaching of these verses, but I think what we'll consider this morning are implied truths from these verses. But before we hear God's word from Hebrews 11, let us once again call upon his name in prayer. Father, we are reminded once again that even though this is Memorial Day weekend, even though many of us are on vacation, maybe the rest of us here are waiting to go on vacation, I, I pray that you would impress upon us that there is nothing better, nothing more important than to, than to gather once again to worship you and hear your word. For we are poor and needy. We are weak and wounded, we are sick and sore, and so we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, for in Christ we find our riches, in Christ we find our help, in Christ we find our healing and restoration. And so I pray that as we hear your word, you would direct us to behold your Son once again. Help us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This remains the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God to us. Our God is a generational God, meaning there is a family dynamic to faith. God does not merely reveal and commit himself to individuals. He does so to families for generations to come. God's self-revelation to Moses had a generational family component. For he said, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, or you might translate that to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Likewise, God's promise, therefore, has a family or generational component. For God said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And lest you think God only cares about families and generational faith in the Old Testament, Peter preaches at Pentecost in light of the New Covenant, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so when you read through the book of Acts and you see the gospel spreading, you see it not only spread to individuals, but you see it spread to households. When Lydia was converted, we read that she and her household were baptized. When the Philippian jailer hears the gospel, he asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answer him, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And then Luke records, 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. God's self-revelation is generational. His promise is generational. Therefore, it should not be surprising that his commands are generational. God commands the Christian faith to be passed down from generation to generation. So Moses commands, only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And again, speaking of God's words, Moses exhorts, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And likewise, Paul commands, Christian parents to bring up their children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, or in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God is a generational God whose self-revelation promises and commands incorporate families from generation to generation, which means Faith is a family matter. God creates his family not only through the evangelization and discipleship of the nations, which he does and which we must be vehemently committed to, but he also creates his family through procreation and the evangelization and discipleship of children. We should be equally committed to this. Parents and churches, since the evangelization and discipleship of children is not exclusively the province of parents, but is the province of the church, parents and churches must desire and labor for generational faith. For one of the significant ways the church fulfills her mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ is by passing down her faith from generation to generation. And this, I believe, is one of the implications of Hebrews 11, especially verses 8 through 22. As I said last week, this section is first about Abraham's life of faith, but it's not just about Abraham. This section is tied together by Abraham's whole family. For Abraham and Sarah had to live by faith together. And they had to pass this faith down to their children and their children's children, who likewise, we read, lived by faith. So you see in verse 9 that Isaac and Jacob lived in Canaan in the same way Abraham did. With Isaac and Jacob essentially means 
as did Isaac and Jacob. So the author is saying Isaac and Jacob lived in the promised land as in a foreign land, living in tents, just like Abraham did, because they were heirs with Abraham of the promise. And then you see in verses 20 through 22, Abraham's son, his grandson, and his great-grandson, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all living by faith and passing down their faith, just as Abraham did. All of this reveals the family dynamic of faith, which was already hinted at in verse 7, when it says that Noah's household was saved in the ark because of his faith. And so this morning, I'm going to spend my time emphasizing this family dynamic of faith, specifically offering a principle to guide you as you seek to pass down your faith, a reminder to comfort you as you seek to pass down your faith, and an application for you to put into practice. What is one thing you should be dedicated to as you seek to pass down your faith? Now, in some ways, this is more geared to parents. But as I said, this is the, the province of the whole church. We all must be seeking to pass down our faith. So if you don't have kids, you still listen. And if you're kids, you still listen because you're the ones who are supposed to embrace this faith for yourselves. So here's the principle to guide you. When seeking to pass down your faith to future generations, you must understand that the life of faith is caught as well as taught. In other words, your children not only need to hear your faith, they need to see your faith. I've already read from Deuteronomy and Ephesians where God commands us to make his word and his ways known to our children. We must teach our children diligently, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Christian faith must be clearly taught if we are to hope that our children would embrace it for themselves. There is no such thing in the Christian life as being seen and not heard. If you are not heard, you are not passing down your faith. But faith is caught as well as taught. They need to see our faith practiced just as much as they need to hear our faith professed. As verse 9 implies, Isaac saw how his father lived in the land in light of the promise. Abraham surely taught Isaac the promise that he had received from God, teaching Isaac that he was part of the promise he had received from God. But Isaac also had to see Abraham live by faith in that promise so that Isaac would live as Abraham did. And then when Jacob was born, he had to see how his father and grandfather lived. And likewise, we see that Jacob adopted their lifestyle. Even more apparent is verses 17 through 19. Isaac was an eyewitness to Abraham's faith 
as Abraham obeys God to offer Isaac. He obviously was there. It says, by faith, verse 17, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac as he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. Can you imagine being Isaac in that scenario? Last week, I speculated about what it had been like for Sarah in all of these instances as God is commanding Abraham, you need to leave your home and go where I'm not telling you you're going yet. You need to conceive and have a son in your 90s. And then you need to offer this son to me. And Sarah had to go along with Abraham every step of the way by faith. But now, imagine Isaac. As his father walks him up a mountain, he builds an altar and he places Isaac on that altar. We might think, well, this would destroy Isaac's faith in God. I mean, why would he want to follow a God that has just told his dad to give up his life? Wouldn't he get bitter at his dad and hate his dad's God? And yet verse 20 immediately begins by faith Isaac. Now Isaac is living by this very same faith, so it clearly did not destroy his faith in Abraham's God. So what did Isaac see as Abraham prepared to offer him to God? Well, Isaac saw firsthand that in the life of faith, God comes first. I have no doubt Isaac knew how much his parents loved him. I mean, just think about how much any parent talks about their children. You, you can't get parents to be quiet about their, their kids. They love their kids. And, and here is Isaac, the child of promise they had in their 90s. You have to imagine everywhere they went, they're saying, have you met my son Isaac? Do you hear about my son Isaac when he was born, how the Lord did this? This is my son Isaac. I didn't have a son. This is my son Isaac. Isaac knew how much his parents loved him. He was their miracle son of promise, a son they had prayed and waited for for decades. God even recognizes how much Abraham and Sarah love Isaac. When he tells Abraham to offer Isaac, he says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. This is not a child you don't care anything about. This is the son you love. Isaac was wonderfully loved by his parents. And he needed to know how much his parents loved him and delighted him. But to catch their faith, he needed to know that they loved and delighted in God more. For faith makes God first. The life of faith always lives for God. So parents, your children need to know how much you love them, how much you delight in them, how much you thank God for them every single day. They need to know that they are an immeasurable blessing and not an unwanted burden. 
But if you love your children, you will desire your children's salvation more than you desire anything else for them. And if you desire their eternal salvation above all else, then what you will be praying for and seeking above all else is for them to have saving faith. And if your goal is their faith, then you must show them what faith does. And what faith does is put God first. Therefore, if you love your children, you must teach them and treat them in a way that shows God comes first for you and that you love God more than you love them. To love your children best, you must love God most. They must know they are not the center of your universe, just as they're not the center of the universe. You don't live for them. If they think everything is about them, if they think they come first above all else, then they will not see saving faith. So how do they see this reality? Well, they'll see this reality in your daily dedication to God's word and to prayer. My wife, Leandra, has mentioned on multiple, on multiple occasions how impactful it was for her when every morning she came downstairs and she saw her mom in the same place with the same Bible open and spending time with the Lord. Because that showed my wife who comes first. And her mom showed her in this way that a life of faith is humble dependence upon God. It is looking to God. It is learning to live according to his word and way. How you order your life is going to teach your kids how to order theirs. What excites you, what you love to talk about is what they're going to catch. So it's going to start exciting them. If the things of God are never on your mind or on your tongue, you shouldn't be surprised if the things of God are not on the minds and tongues of your children. So tell them about the love of God, but show them love for God. They'll also see this as you prioritize time to worship with your family as often as you can, reading the word together, singing and praying together. Show them that family life revolves around God. In our actions, we show what Joshua declared. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Our kids need to know our house, it's about serving the Lord. That's what we do. Moses says of God's words, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, it's great to write Bible verses on your walls and doorposts and all of that. But what Moses is really saying is your house needs to obviously be a house that's all about the word of God. They will also see this when you make Sunday worship non-negotiable for you and for them. 
They will see this when they see you worship because they're with you in worship. Never underestimate how much your children are actually getting an understanding when they are here. I've always been surprised when I think my kids are just checked out and yet they're getting something. And every once in a while, they'll say something profound. And it really is every once in a while. But they say something profound. And I think, wow, I didn't think they were listening. I didn't think they saw that. And they did. Our children need to see in our devotions, in our worship, and in our calendars that they are not the sun around which the planets of our lives orbit. They are important. They are not the most important. The life of faith makes God first in life. And that's what our kids need to see if they're to catch this faith. They also need to see that the life of faith is full of grace and forgiveness. In other words, they don't need perfect parenting. They need grace-filled parenting. For the only kind of faith that poor sinners like us can exhibit on this side of eternity is a small, weak, flawed faith. So if they are not to lose hope in their own lives of faith, they need to see how we deal with sin and failure. We don't need to hide all our sins and failures from them. They need to hear parents confess sin and ask for forgiveness. They need to hear and receive forgiveness when they sin. In other words, yes, our children need to learn obedience. They need to know Jesus is Lord. They also need to learn forgiveness, knowing Jesus is our Savior. They need firm, consistent discipline, but only such as comes with compassion, patience, gentleness, mercy, and which is always clothed in the grace of love. For the life of faith makes God first in life, but it is also full of grace and forgiveness. So that's what we need to show our children, that it may be caught as well as taught. That's the principle that guides you. But here's a reminder, which I hope will actually comfort you. And the reminder is that your children belong to God first and foremost. Your children are not first and foremost your children. They're God's children. He gave them life. He will take their life and he will govern every moment of their life in between. That's what Abraham and Isaac both had to learn when they went up the mountain. Remember what Isaac learned as he laid upon the altar was that everything, including him and his father, came from, existed for, and belonged to God. He learned that God was first and foremost, and so he learned that faith in and obedience to God is paramount. He knew how much his father loved him. He needed to know how much his father loved God. So as I said, the life of faith, for it to be caught, 
We show our children that faith looks to and lives for God. But Abraham also had to learn a lesson that day. He had to learn that Isaac was not the best thing that God had ever given him. He needed to know Isaac was not first and foremost his. Isaac was first and foremost God's. So, when God tested Abraham in this way, the implied question was, Abraham, do you love and live for me or for the good gifts that I give you? Do you understand that you belong to me and I may do with you as I will? And do you understand that Isaac belongs to me and I may do with him as I will? Abraham, do you understand that you are mine and that Isaac is mine? And Abraham's faithful obedience answered, Yes, God. I understand that you come first, that I want you more than I want anything else, and that everything I have, including my only beloved son, belongs to you. I am yours. He is yours. And whether you give him or whether you take him away, I bless your name. You see, in one sense, parents, you are all commanded to do exactly what Isaac was command, what Abraham was commanded to do. You are commanded to offer your children to God in the sense that you recognize that you and they belong to God and exist for his glory. In other words, as soon as you receive your children, your first responsibility is to return your children to the Lord's loving care. When parents in our denomination, the PCA, present their children for baptism, they're asked three questions, and these are vows in in one sense. And the third question or vow begins this way. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? In other words, do you acknowledge that your child belongs to God and you bow and worship before him, entrusting your child to him and submitting to him for whatever he ordains for your child. Because you have to do this not knowing what God has ordained for your children. Just like Abraham had to go out not knowing where he was going. And that's scary. The pastor of the PCA Church in Nashville, who lost his daughter in the school shooting, acknowledged in his eulogy for her that he and his wife had no idea what they were agreeing to when they took this vow at her baptism nine years earlier. But he also said they they do not regret that vow at all. Because there is no safer or better place for our children to be than in the sovereign hand of God. 
And this is actually why I say this reminder ought to comfort you because you make decisions for your children without perfect knowledge, wisdom, love, or design. But God ordains every moment of their life according to his perfect knowledge, wisdom, love, and will. You are not wiser than God. You are not more righteous than God. You do not love your children and desire their good more than God does. Parents, your children belong to God first and foremost. You must remember the substance of the covenant of grace as it was articulated to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. He's saying, I'm their God just as I'm your God. He says, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And to be their God is to be their father. Remember Hebrews 2, when the author attributes the words of Isaiah to Jesus saying, behold, I am the children God has given me. They're God's children, which means, parents, you are merely stewards of their lives. You don't own them. Just as I am an under-shepherd as a pastor, serving the sheep on behalf of the chief shepherd to whom they belong, so parents are under-parents, serving the children on behalf of the Heavenly Father to whom they belong. But I also hope this comforts you in the sense that it reminds you that their salvation, which is what we desire most, is not ultimately determined by your parenting. Your parenting is important, it is informative, but it is not paramount, and it is not determinative. It matters, but it is not what matters most. Whether or not your children are saved depends finally on God's election, not your instruction. You cannot save your children as much as you may want to. For consider the examples in Hebrews 11. Noah, in verse 7, set an example for all three of his sons as he lived by faith day after day, decade after decade, building the ark in obedience to God's word. Shem, Ham, and Japheth all saw and benefited from their father's faith. And I say they all benefited because they all went into the ark. That's what it means when saved is household. Doesn't mean they're all eternally spiritually saved, but they all had real tangible benefits from being Noah's kids and getting to go in that ark. Just as there are real benefits to being born into a Christian home and part of a Christian church doesn't automatically save you, but don't think that's negligible. But they all saw and benefited from Noah's faith. But even though they all benefited from being members of the covenant in this sense, they didn't all embrace the covenant by faith. 
For we read in Genesis 9 how Ham sinned against his father, and so his line through his son Canaan was cursed. Or we read in Hebrews 11 that Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Both were his sons and covenant members, yet Esau, because of God's election, as Paul explains in Romans 9, didn't receive the promise like Jacob did. Or even think of Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar, which he had before Isaac. Abraham prays that Ishmael would be the, God, would be the son of, of promise. And God says, no. Now, Ishmael still received the covenant sign and seal, but he did not end up like Isaac did. So when Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, when Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh with Joseph's sons, these blessings all had to recognize, foresee, and submit to God's future for these children. Their blessings were not determining the future. The future belonged to God, not to them. And that's what we must do. But it also means, therefore, that we can't ultimately mess it up for our kids. You will sin. You will make mistakes as a parent. You already have. Even if your child is a few weeks old, I hate to break it to you, you've probably messed up. Abraham and Sarah were far from perfect parents. Abraham lies about his relationship to Sarah when he goes to a foreign land. Things don't go well. Then you notice a little bit later in Genesis when Isaac grows up, he does the exact same thing his dad did. Sarah didn't always exhibit great faith. When she's first told Isaac's going to be born, she laughs in doubt, not in faith. Isaac and Rebekah each had their own favorite son and schemed against each other so that one son would be blessed above the other. Ham's sin comes as a response to Noah's sin. Don't even get me started on Jacob. He's got two wives and two concubines, so all of his kids have different moms. That gets messed up, and Jacob has his favorites over the others, which again makes it really bad for one of his sons. None of these people in here were perfect parents. That's not why their children lived by faith. Parents sin, parents make mistakes, but these sins and mistakes do not annul God's plan and purpose for our children. Parents, you have to understand, your best will not save your children. Your worst will not damn them. So do not place a burden of responsibility upon your shoulders, which God has not given you. You do not know what God has ordained for your children, and you couldn't change it even if you did. For you are stewards of God's gifts, not the owner. Your children belong to God first and foremost, and that is really good news because he is wiser, more powerful, and more loving than you are. His purposes are better than your purposes. His will is purer than your will. So what do you do knowing that you as a parent are a 
steward of these lives. Here's my primary application in addition to everything else I've said. What you do as a steward is you entrust your children to God and you pray for them every single day. With your life, you are called to trust and obey. With your children's lives, you are called to entrust and pray. You don't need to know if they are elect or not to pray for them. You don't need to know whether they will embrace the covenant promises by faith to know how to teach and raise them. You raise them as covenant children because the Bible says that's what they are. Paul doesn't specify which kid should be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As if you wait to see if they're going to profess faith before you start raising them in the instruction of the Lord. All the children in the church are to be raised this way. They may ultimately reject the covenant promises, but they are rejecting what belongs to them. So entrust your children to God. Acknowledge his sovereignty. And as you do this, pray, 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 and pray some more. Teach them. Discipline them. Play with them, but above all else, pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray for God's protection and provision. You cannot give them a new heart. You can read every book and follow every formula to the letter, but if God isn't the one working in them, there will be no faith and no fruit. I see this in trusting and praying, especially in the story of Jacob blessing his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were Joseph's boys. As he places his hands upon their heads, you read in Genesis that he first says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. That is a prayer for the promise and faith in the promise to be passed down. Then Jacob actually blesses the boys. But you notice in Hebrews 11.21 it says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. I think that's significant. He blessed the boys, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And in this way, he acknowledged that everything he had spoken was in God's hands and in this act of worship, he entrusted their lives and their futures to the one who already had control. We pray for our children, and then we bow in worship to our God, trusting he's going to do what's best. God always does what is best. Let me also just acknowledge here, some of you, if you're anything like me, whether you still have little kids at home, whether your kids are 
grown up and out of the house, living their own lives. You, you probably have or now feel discouraged in your parenting. Some of you are probably discouraged with the spiritual progress or lack thereof in your kids. Some of your children may have grown up and are not following the Lord. Maybe some have passed away and you're not sure if they believed in Christ or not. For those whose children are, are still living, I would just remind you, it's not too late. Keep praying. Keep praying in light of God's covenant promises. Keep claiming those promises for your children. Keep speaking those promises to your children. Some of you have been doing this for a really long time and you are tired and I simply, with all the grace I can muster, say, don't give up. Keep praying Keep teaching, keep loving your children. You may not see fruit now. It doesn't matter. Keep doing it. Don't give up. God works in different ways and in different times with our children. It's not one size fits all. Don't despair if you have sinned and made mistakes as a mom or dad. Receive grace for yourself. Give grace to them. Keep praying for them, teaching them, exemplifying a life of faith for them. And for those of you who maybe have had children pass away and you're not sure of their spiritual state, don't let guilt or fear weigh you down. God determined their beginning and God determined their end. It wasn't ultimately up to you. So keep trusting him and his good purpose. The truth is parenting is hard and it can be frightening. Sometimes, though, I, I do think we can make it a little too complicated and formulaic. There are really good books out there to help you with parenting. I've probably read them all. Because I'm just desperate to get better. I, I want to know more. And there can be really helpful things. It's good to learn from others. Don't be too proud and think you can just figure it all out on your own. Discipline is necessary. Instruction is necessary. We ought to be seeking to grow as parents. But I do think this word of caution that I received from my pastor when I was younger is helpful. He once wrote an article that summarized what he taught to a lot of the young parents or soon-to-be parents in the church. And he wrote, I worry that young parents are A, too adamant about the particulars of their parenting, or B, too sure that every decision will set their kids on an unalterable trajectory to heaven or hell. Could it be we've made parenting too complicated? Isn't the most important thing not what we do, but who we are as parents? They will see our character before they remember our exact rules regarding television and Twinkies. I could be wrong. Maybe this no theory is a theory of its own. I just know that the longer I parent, the more I want to focus on doing a few things really well and not get too passionate about all the rest. I want to spend time with my kids teach them the Bible, take them to church, laugh with them, cry with them, discipline them when they disobey, say sorry when I mess up, 
and pray like crazy. I want them to look back and think, I'm not sure what my parents were doing or even if they knew what they were doing. But I always knew my parents loved me and I knew they loved Jesus. I think that's a really wise perspective. Parents, what matters most is the faith of your children. So you need to understand that faith is caught as well as taught. But you also must remember that your children belong to God first and foremost, which means your primary responsibility is not to save them. It is to entrust them to God and do as my pastor said, pray like crazy. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of generations and you are a God of grace to those generations. And I know that as a, a dad, as in every other sphere of my life, I need a lot of grace. So I pray that for everyone here, you would impress upon us once again the importance of passing down our faith, of raising covenant children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. I pray that we would take that seriously. But I also pray that for those who are tired, you would give them strength. For those who are discouraged, you would give them grace and comfort that you would help them remember that you are way more patient with them probably than they are with their own kids. So I just pray that you would help us trust in you and entrust our children to you. For you give and you take away you have ordained every moment of every day for our lives and for theirs, and you know every hair on their head, just as you do for us, and we know that not one hair of our head can fall apart from your will. So help us to love you, to trust you, and to show that love and trust to our children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.